Our sermon text for today is in Matthew 28, 1 through 15. Open up your Bibles there, or it will be on the screen, and also in your bulletin. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. He did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Just to give away the punchline to my sermon already, because I've already experienced it. We encounter the risen Lord Jesus through His Word and through His people. And I've already experienced that already. He is alive in us. It was a joy to hear your voices proclaiming our reigning King. So before we jump into his word and hear him speak to us, let's pray. God, we are weak. Our sin is abundant. We have chased after all kinds of other pleasures and lost sight of you far too often. We thank you that It is not our own strength, it is not our own cleverness, not our own wisdom, not the the size of our community or the ability of our service, but it is the blood of your Son, the will of your Spirit that comes after us and makes us His own and, and endures us until your work on earth is done. Help us now to see our risen Lord Jesus, on display in all of His glory, in beauty, in triumph over death, to inspire us to remain faithful, to keep on striving, to endure to the end. You have promised You will do it. You will lead us through all of these trials in our life when we remain faithful to keep our eyes on our risen Christ. Do that for us now. Show us His will and His beauty. Amen. 
It's always really sad to me when I hear of a major evangelical leader who's been asked to be removed from his position or has fallen into sin. As a pastor, it's been really quite sobering to my own soul as I've watched over the last few years what seems to be every month another pastor falling away from Christ. It should be a warning to everybody in this room that none of us are immune from temptation. And so I examine myself and I ask questions to avoid falling into my own failure. And I wonder, how did these guys get there? How did they end up falling? What were they thinking that made them so susceptible to such failure? The most recent pastoral departure that you may have heard of this last week, or last couple of weeks, is that of Josh Harris. He wrote a book 20 years ago when he was just a young man called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And he has announced recently that he has kissed his marriage goodbye. He's turning his back completely on not only his marriage, but on Christ altogether. Coming as quite a shock to many. Because Josh Harris seemed to have it all together. He did everything right. He wrote the book that inspired an entire generation of young people to go hard after purity, to wait for God to provide the right spouse. He even wrote a book on digging deep into theological truth, how to really know God deeply in His Word. He was raised by faithful Christian parents. And now he announces that it's all a sham. He wants nothing to do with it. He's chosen to throw out years of marriage, years of ministry, almost an entire lifetime of adherence to the Bible. It broke my heart. And I was, as I'm reading about this, I was led to even more articles. And I found another story of another pastor of a large church down in Missouri who just a couple of months earlier went down the same exact path as Josh Harris. After significant marriage struggles, he left his wife as well and his ministry. And he wrote, As an adult, my marriage was a sham and a constant source of pain for me. I did everything I was supposed to. Marriage workshops, counseling, Bible reading together, date nights every week, marriage books. But my marriage never became what I was promised it would be. And that last statement reveals something very instructive to every single one of us that needs to be confronted in all of us today from our text. What is this Christian life all about? What are you expecting by coming to church, by reading your Bibles and praying and aligning your behaviors with biblical principles? What do you think it is that God has promised you? One of my greatest fears as a pastor stepping up to this pulpit to explain the Word of God to you is that I would teach you and train you and and equip you to do all kinds of Christian-looking things. And then you would be one of those people who stands before God on the Judgment Day as we read in Matthew 7. And He says, Depart from Me, I never knew you. And you're going to turn and look at Me. And say, didn't we come to your Bible studies and and join one of your community groups and give to your missions offerings? 
Just like that pastor who said, I did everything I was supposed to, but I didn't get what I was promised. This pivotal moment in the Gospel of Matthew, however, reorients our expectations. Redefines for us what our Christian identity is. It re-centers our attention, not on what we do, but focuses our eyes on the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew wants us to see the resurrected Jesus and go tell the world about it. That's what this Christian life is all about. Everything about our faith hinges on the resurrection. All the promises of God depend on Jesus rising from the dead. The only promise that we cling to is that by trusting Him, one day our lives will be made new as well. See the resurrected Jesus. Make this your only identity and go and tell the world. Matthew will call us to this task just by briefly looking at the resurrection in seven verses, the first seven verses of our text. And then demanding a response in verses 8 to 15. There's two responses that he compares. One that delights in the truth and leads to new life and one that flees the truth spreads a lie leading to death. So let's jump into the text together and see this marvelous event in history. Starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, behold, I have told you. This incredible, glorious truth that we've been celebrating the church for 2,000 years. But don't let the mood of the moment be lost on you. Remember how the women are feeling. They've come to the tomb to mourn. They just gave three years of their lives along with the other disciples to following Jesus, whom they thought was the Messiah, the King of Israel, the promised Redeemer from Genesis who was going to restore all things. He was he displayed more power and authority, more tenderness and compassion than anyone in the history of the world. And now here they are at His tomb the third day after He died. He died. Were they lied to? Were they just confused? Seemed they did everything they were supposed to and they got none of what they were promised. The women go in the morning early to the tomb to mourn. Mourn not only the loss of their friend, but the loss of all their hopes and dreams, the loss of the best years of their life. They go to the tomb to wonder, maybe get some answers and find purpose again in their lives. 
But as they arrive, an incredible phenomenon takes place right in front of them. The ground shakes. Right before them, a dazzling angel appears. The sight is so awesome that the guards drop down to the ground as though they are dead. The identity of this angel isn't exactly clear. Matthew doesn't explicitly say who he is. But a very similar thing happened back in Daniel chapter 10. An angel, bright like lightning, appears before Daniel. People fall to the ground trembling and he talks to Daniel and says, Do not be afraid. Matthew is picking up on this story, saying this is the fulfillment of that ancient promise that began in Daniel's vision. When Daniel saw the angel, the angel explained to him how redemptive history would happen after their exile. Kings and nations would rise and fall for hundreds of years, and then the final king would be destroyed, would be conquered through a great struggle, which would, in chapter 12 of Daniel, be followed by a resurrection. Daniel was quite confused. He didn't understand what was going on. The angel didn't give him much detail. He just said, shut these words up in the prophecy and someday far in the future you'll understand. And from that moment on, kingdoms and nations rose and fall just as Daniel, the angel had told Daniel. Yet nobody had experienced that dramatic, climactic moment when that final king was destroyed. But Matthew wants us to see that the moment is beginning right here. When the women and the guards witness the ground shaking, people falling to the ground and the dead rising from the grave. Jesus rising is the conquering victory over all the earth's kingdoms. It's the beginning of a new resurrected life for His people who follow Him. The decisive battle was at the cross and when He rose from the dead, He declared victory over it all. To prove he's alive, the angel simply says, come and see, look for yourself. Verse 6, he is not here for he has risen, as he said. He predicted this would happen, guys. Come see the place where he lay. Notice back in verse 2 that the angel came down and rolled the stone out of the way. He didn't roll it out of the way to let Jesus out. Jesus was already gone. He rolled it out of the way to let the witnesses in. With all of this happening, suddenly it clicks in their mind. They know what's happening. The Word of God, the promises of God, and the empty tomb combine as clear evidence that this is the turning point in history. The foundational moment of establishing a new kingdom. The beginning of all their hearts had truly longed for. And Matthew doesn't spend any more time talking about the resurrection. It's time to get to work. With the promises in Scripture and watching the stone roll away to reveal the empty tomb, what more do we need to talk about? It was promised. It happened. Let's go. Five times Matthew uses the word behold in this text. Once it says see in your ESV. Some of your other translations might say behold. But Matthew thinks it's clear enough. It's obvious enough if you have eyes to see. Just look Open your eyes. Jesus rose from the dead. God is fulfilling all of His promises in Christ. Jesus is the risen, reigning King that Daniel saw in his visions. All that's required to do is spread the news. 
This news demands a response. You don't see Jesus risen from the dead and then turn around and go home and go about life as usual. So the angel tells the women in verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. They haven't even seen him yet. All they have is an empty tomb, but the angel promises them, you go to Galilee, you will get to see him face to face. So they run. They go quickly. Turn to verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them on the way and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Matthew tells us they quickly departed from the tomb. They didn't sit around pondering all the theological implications of this event. They didn't wonder if maybe they should go home and get dressed and cleaned up first or you know, I'm not an evangelist. Maybe I'm not the person who should go out and share this news. There might be someone more qualified for this. No, they went with fear and great joy. Maybe there was a little fear about seeing that powerful looking angel or fear thinking about, oh, the guy that the Roman Empire and the Jews tried to kill is now back to life. I wonder what kind of great battle is going to happen. But none of that mattered because they were overwhelmed with joy at the realization that death could not defeat the kingdom of Christ. When you grasp the significance of the resurrection, suddenly you don't care so much about your own issues. Your sufferings become less of a burden in light of bodies coming out of the grave. Your chaotic life is less stressful when you realize Jesus reigns over every detail of your life. You comprehend how big of a deal it is, and you tell people, it must come out. And so the women go to tell. And on their way, they don't even have to get to Galilee, on the way, Jesus meets them. What an incredible honor this was for them. Women in the first century kind of had second class status. They weren't, they didn't, their testimony wasn't allowed in court. And yet here, they've got the wonderful privilege of being recorded as the first people to witness the empty tomb, the first people to get to talk to Jesus, touch him, hold him, worship him. Jesus values those that the world does not value. They are recorded in history with this great honor. And then, as they walk up to Jesus, I love how casual the encounter is. Jesus just says, greetings. This, this word translated greetings is literally the word that people would just use to say hi to each other on the street. Or if you go to the market and see someone, you would say greetings in this way. It's kind of a strange thing to say considering all that just happened. The women had just experienced the worst moment of their entire lives watching their Lord be crucified, brutally killed. And then their emotions dramatically swing the opposite direction when they're told He's alive again. And they got to run and tell people. And then here comes Jesus and says, Hey guys, what's up? Anything new happen? I think this speaks to the way that 
the extraordinary nature of the resurrection breaks into our ordinary lives. Jesus died and rose from the dead for regular people like these women and fishermen who are his disciples and people like you and me. Regular people. The king of the universe who has power over death is a friend of sinners. Recognizing his authority, though, the women, they run right to him and get down on their faces and grab a hold of his feet and worship him. That word worship means to just get down as low as you can before someone of greater authority. Literally, if you break the word apart, it means to kiss someone's feet. But that's not exactly what it means. It's just the imagery that should come to mind when you see how great someone's majesty is, how huge their power is before you, and how utterly low you are before them. The Bible regularly shows people on their faces before God. And yet here Jesus comforts them. Do not be afraid. He's not going to use His power to destroy them. He's recruiting them as the first people to be on the front lines of spreading this good, wonderful, marvelous news that He has conquered death. When you see the power and authority of Jesus on display, you too ought to get down as low as you can. Cast your entire life at His feet. It's all yours, Jesus. And then when you look up at His smiling face, you realize He died on the cross and rose from the dead for you personally. Not just some interesting information that happened 2,000 years ago. For you. He tells you to stand up and go tell someone about it. Make the resurrection the anthem of your life. Now the women weren't the only ones who were at the tomb that day. Others were there and witnessed this same thing, but their response turned into something quite different. Let's go back to the text in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, "Uh, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The women went to go tell the disciples this marvelous news, but they weren't the only ones who experienced this inexplicable event. There was a group of soldiers there specifically tasked to prevent this very thing from happening. This was their one job to do, and they failed. This could cost them their lives. They should be afraid. After rising from their paralyzing fear, the soldiers quickly run to speak to the priests. Just as the women went to tell what they saw to the disciples, the soldiers went to tell what they saw to the priests. There's supposed to be a striking contrast here between these two responses. Both of them witnessed the same event. Both were filled with great fear. Both went to tell what they saw. As we see in verse 15, both went and spread their version of the story. But this is how an alternate version of the story took place. The soldiers hurry to the chief priests and elders and they 
pool together a large amount of money and say, here, they bribe them, here, we'll protect you. Go and spread this story, that they stole the body. These these disciples, yeah, we think they're pretty weak, and they came and overcame you and rolled that giant stone out of the way and lugged the body over their shoulders and managed to convince the world that he's alive. Yeah, I think we got this covered. It's obviously a ridiculous cover-up. They even anticipate that the governor, Pontius Pilate, won't believe them when they tell him. And why would he believe them? This ragtag group of disciples can overpower trained professional soldiers? Not likely. The soldiers ought to be afraid. Their lives are in danger. They at least will lose their jobs. But the priests offer their own kind of assurance. Without saying the same words, they're basically saying, do not be afraid. My authority goes before you to protect you. And just like Jesus telling the women, do not be afraid. His authority goes before them, before the highest court in the universe, before God protecting them, and His authority goes before them as they spread this message. It's quite striking to me as I watch this scene unfold with the soldiers and the priests that the priests never actually consider whether Jesus really rose from the dead. It doesn't even enter their conversation. It's so preposterous, they don't give any thought to it. They had so constructed their religious lives and the way they think about religion and and, and being in a relationship with God that the resurrection was not a reality that could enter their thinking. To them, as we've heard already, it was all about doing the right things in order to receive some promise. We've heard this before. This is the thinking that must be challenged by the reality of the resurrection. Matthew says, behold, 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 over and over to say, look, it's so plainly obvious. This should dominate your attention. This should define your life. The resurrection is the central message, the defining doctrine, the essential event of the entire Christian faith. And yet, if you look back on all the major failures of these pastors, or maybe friends you know who walked away from Jesus, or how cults begin, heretical movements, they all have lost sight of the resurrection as the primary shaper of their identity. As it was for these women and the disciples, and the Apostle Paul, and all those churches he planted, and every faithful Christian throughout history, they kept their eyes on the risen Lord Jesus. Those who fall away usually believe that following Christ is simply about following a certain set of rules, believing a certain doctrine in order to receive a good life in return. And then when it gets hard or really confusing, Their foundation is exposed and their faith quickly erodes. So an article this week that was commenting on Josh Harris falling away wrote to him personally as a friend of the family saying, it seems that you thought Christianity was a series of formulas. Formulas for marriage, formulas for systematic theology, fear of choosing the wrong formula, fear of failing to live up to your own formula. Josh Harris wrote the book 
on how to find a godly spouse. He wrote a book on how to understand right theology. He thought if he did these things, he would have a better life. Seems he thought he could make a deal with God that God did not agree to. And then when life got hard, he realized that his teaching hurt lots of people. His marriage got really difficult. Instead of examining his foundation, he fled in fear, spreading his own story of doubt like these soldiers did. But we're all not immune to this this tendency. It's ironic to me that I, when I grew up Catholic, so I know a little bit about Catholic doctrine, that we evangelical Protestants like to look at Catholics and say, oh, you're so legalistic thinking that you can impress God with your good works and He's got to let you into heaven. And then we turn and, and scoff at prosperity teachers who say, well, Jesus came to give you a good, rich, prosperous, healthy life. And that here we do, here we are. We smash the two heresies together. And we say, if I just do all the right things and follow biblical principles, life is going to be better. If I educate my kids properly, if I stay pure before marriage, if I build a strong home life, read my Bible, pray every day, go to church every Sunday, then God's going to give me a pretty good life with a nice heavenly cherry on top. That's not what Jesus called us to. It is not what you've signed up for when you chose to follow Christ. He promised you would endure great suffering as we bring His kingdom to bear in this world. He promised it would divide our families and invite mockery from the world. He will lead you into many dangers, toils, and snares that will cause you great fear and pain. What's going to determine whether you stay faithful or not? when that difficulty comes. What was the difference between what the women experienced and what the soldiers experienced? Both of them witnessed the same empty tomb. They were both afraid. They both immediately went and told what they saw. One pursued faithfulness toward a new identity and the other fled the truth toward self-preservation. We know that the women were successful in spreading the good news of the resurrection. That's why we're here today, right? Verse 15 tells us the soldiers were successful in spreading their news, which is still a lie that many believe today. Two messages spreading throughout the earth until Christ returns. So what is it that encouraged the women to go one way and the soldiers another? What is it that's going to keep you going down one path and not the other? We see it in verse 9. The difference was an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Both the women and the soldiers were filled with fear, but Jesus came to the women, revealed Himself, and told them, do not be afraid. And so we too must encounter the risen King and surrender our lives to Him. This is not primarily about things you must do about living a certain way. Christianity is primarily about surrendering your life to His living authority. If you are to remain faithful, you too must meet with the risen Christ. But how do we do that? He ascended into heaven, right? 
I already gave this part of my sermon away when we started. There are two ways I want to leave you with that we meet with the risen Jesus. First, we meet with Him through His Word. As I preached a couple of weeks ago, when you read your Bible and understand the whole story from beginning to end, you start to see that the whole thing is all about Jesus. Every story from Genesis to Revelation points to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The entire thing, every character, every theme, every event is about Jesus. As you behold and comprehend this wonderful story, it refreshes your soul, it becomes life-giving to you in a way that only a real relationship with a real person can. It's as if you're getting to know Jesus Himself as He comes to life from the pages of His biography. You watch how people's lives are transformed in the story by being in His presence. And then you step back and watch how the Word goes around the world and people's lives are transformed in the same way. Transformed by a real living person. That's why the author of Hebrews says the Word of God is living and active. It's living and active because it is the Word of a living, active, risen Jesus. He's speaking to you when you read His Word. Do you want to hear God talk to you? Then read out loud. Secondly, we experience the risen Jesus through His people. Jesus said it's better for Him to ascend to the Father so He could send His Holy Spirit to live in His disciples. And then in the book of Acts, we watch as the Spirit comes down and empowers the disciples. And they go out and what do they do? They talk about the resurrection. The whole book of Acts is the story of Jesus still alive through His disciples, through the church, you and me. When you engage the church who delights in Christ crucified and resurrected, you engage with the risen Christ. We are the body of Christ who continues to live through us. So don't just come to church on Sunday morning as an event where you get some instruction and inspiration. You don't come to church to hang out with people who kind of see the world like you do just to get through this difficult life. You come primarily to see Christ, to be with Jesus. To transform your life as you walk with Him in His body. Friends, following Jesus is not about what you do. It's about keeping your eyes on Christ, experiencing His transfer, transforming grace through His Word and through His people. In fact, this whole thing's not even really about you at all. There's no way, there's no promise that you're going to have a godly spouse and a flourishing marriage. There's no key to a peaceful home or a successful career. No promise that you're going to make it through this life without suffering. In fact, the promise is Quite the opposite. Church isn't to be your place or your people. The only foundation for your faith must be the resurrection of Christ. We are Christ's place, Christ's people for Christ's purposes. You find your purpose when you surround yourself with His body and you become more of a worshiper of the risen Christ. You must ask yourself every single day, 
Did Jesus really, really, 2,000 years ago, die on a cross and rise from the dead three days later? If that happened, if it didn't happen, well, we're wasting our time. This is useless. Go join CrossFit for community. Or don't, Mike. I know you don't like CrossFit. (laughs) But if He did rise from the dead, it demands that every decision is shaped by the resurrection. The resurrection calms every single fear of yours knowing that Jesus has power and authority over all things, even death. Not even death can thwart the purposes and promises of God. Your singleness, your marriage, your addictions, your temptations, your fears and failures all find their hope, their answers in the resurrected Christ alone. Not in your doctrine or your great strategies. Life with Christ is going to be very hard. It's going to hurt. You are going to fail over and over and over again. The only assurance that you have is that Jesus broke out of that tomb and He ascended to the Father and is seated at the right hand of God. And He promises He will redeem it all one day, including your life if you follow Him. When you see the resurrected Jesus and all your fears and failures, your suffering and sadness fades in the light of His radiance. Stand up and go tell someone about it. Let's pray. God, I feel the weight of bringing Your Word to Your people. I don't want to lead anyone astray. I know, as James says, that I will stand before a greater judgment. I don't want to lead people toward anything but the risen King Jesus. And I weep for all those pastors who failed in such regard because I fear I could be one of them too. So please, God, help us persevere and restore those men to faithful beholding of our risen King. God, shape this church to know nothing but Christ crucified and risen from the dead. May that be our anthem. May that be the reason we gather May His living intercession be the reason we joyfully give all of our treasures to spread this wonderful news that He is alive. We know You answer these things because His authority stands before Your throne on our behalf. Amen.